0: All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 147 of Crow 777 Radio. Jason Lingren is with me. We're going to be talking about the technocracy. This is a very interesting episode. We've had to push a lot of it to hour two for obvious reasons, but let me ask the question. What do you know about things like the Trilateral Commission? What do you know about the word technocracy? What is the importance of smart meters? What is the importance of 5G networks? What is the importance of technology? Well, We're going to answer those questions through the course of this, and it is all foundational to a form of dictatorship called a technocracy. So let's jump in with Jason Lindgren and see what we can learn, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 147. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we will be talking about technocracy today, uh, which is probably a thing that we will witness in our near future, very near future. Anyhow, welcome, Jason.
1: And coming to you via technology, straight from the technocracy,
0: good morning. (laughs) There it is, man. Uh, What do we have for the intro? We've got so much to cover here.
1: We do. I guess the easy one to start with is we did a really nice show with Freeman Fly yesterday.
0: We did. Um, And I think if I remember correctly, did he say Saturday nights he goes live? I've forgotten. Yes,
1: Saturday at 8 p.m.
0: So this coming Saturday, uh, Jason and I will appear on Freeman. Uh, Next thing is, oh, by the way, we got the shirts. People have been asking about shirts. So on all our social media, um, Teespring has Crow777 shirts. Uh, The proceeds will go to help run this. And it's also another way to get around or start to try to get around the blackballing by all the search engines because the web address is on the shirts. Uh, What was the other thing? Oh, um, also, Endless contacts from people saying they no longer get notified uh, when I put up a a clip on YouTube. Uh, What we've learned is that if you go to your settings and request an email, you will get notified. But it appears that for the majority of people, notifications will no longer go out from this channel. Anything else, Jason?
1: We still want to go on more shows, so if anybody's got any suggestions, let's hear them.
0: Right. Um, We're ready and raring to go out on shows. I've even accepted a couple that probably I wouldn't have um, not too long ago. just didn't seem like a good fit, but I'm kind of ready to speak to just about anyone who wants to talk. Um, So let's jump into the technocracy thing. Uh, Technocracy is maybe pre-echoed in the idea of it in Brave New World, kind of, um, in a roundabout way. And as a matter of fact, Huxley uh, we'll play directly into the technocracy movement. Basically, what it comes down to is a dictatorship based on technology. And to further set the table here, if you want to engineer a thing, you have to be able to measure it. And that's the basis for all of this. And so when we think of smart meters or 5G networks, um, those are all engaged in measuring, measuring a lot. And since it can be measured before, during, and after, engineering can occur, and that will be the foundational basis for uh, the technocracy that we're going to talk about. And not only that, there's one more point people should be aware of. Basically, in the thinking of collecting data in this way to be engineered, it converts everything to energy. In other words, a man goes to work, um, that's not the way it's viewed. A man goes to expend energy. He sits down at lunch and he consumes something. He's consuming energy. So everything is converted to energy. um, And that should give some insight into, into smart meters, 5G, and all these types of things. Anyhow, it's all you, Jason.
1: So the general definition of the technocracy or a technocracy would be the government or control of society or industry by an elite of technical experts.
0: Right, and we should point out that uh, the technocracy um, has little concern for government. As a matter of fact, it appears that uh, in some later stage of technology, government doesn't even exist. Uh, Basically, what we're talking about here is multinational, massive corporations, banks, these types of things um, making all the rules in a technocracy.
1: Now, to blow that out, technocracy is a proposed system of governance in which decision-makers are selected on the basis of their expertise in a given area of responsibility – particularly with regard to scientific or technical knowledge. This system explicitly contrasts with the notion that elected representatives should be the primary decision-makers in government, though it does not necessarily imply eliminating elected representatives. Leadership skills for decision-makers are selected on the basis of specialized knowledge and performance rather than political affiliations or parliamentary skills. The term technocracy was originally used to advocate the application of the scientific method to solving social problems. Concern could be given to sustainability within the resource base instead of monetary profitability so as to ensure continued operation of all social industrial functions. In its most extreme sense, technocracy is an entire government running as a technical or engineering problem and is mostly hypothetical. In more practical use, technocracy is any portion of a bureaucracy that is run by technologists. A government in which elected officials appoint experts and professionals to administer individual government functions and recommend legislation can be considered technocratic. Some uses of the word refer to a form of meritocracy, where the ablest are in charge, ostensibly without the influence of special interest groups.
0: You know, I I guess I would boil this down to just make it simple to think about. Technocracy is basically a technical dictatorship where high-tech applications control everything, measure everything, engineer everything. But you mentioned a little bit about currency there, Uh, In the later stages of technocracy, one of the ideas is that all currency becomes carbon-based, and you earn these carbon credits that you can spend, but they have a shelf life. Not only do they have a shelf life, they are peculiar to the holder. In other words, you can't transfer it. You can't let your brother or your mom or somebody use your carbon credits, and when they expire, they're gone. So there's all these ideas connected to it as well.
1: I saw a very similar thing where it was monthly energy credits, and let's say you wanted to buy a particular object, you would have a certain amount of energy credits needed based off of what it took to manufacture said item or create said item, whatever happens to be. Very similar concepts, and it's not necessarily a horrible idea, it's the implications that come about as a result thereof and the inclusiveness of it all.
0: Well, to me, Jason, it just gives more insight into the idea of global warming and these types of things. I was even researching accounts where the idea would be, and by the way, this carbon credit idea was put together way back in the 30s. Um, But if you run out of credits and you can't buy anything, then it actually costs you real money to get more credits to be able to operate. But we'll get into this more as we go forward.
1: And before we go any further, let us also not overlook the massive internal push from the powers that be in regards to technology, which is, of course, the centerpiece of all of their transhumanist desires. And we're seeing this, of course, more and more and more.
0: Right. You can't really disassociate the transhumanist idea from the technocracy. And I've tried to boil this down simply just to think about it. Uh, What it basically comes down to is the natural world is replaced by a technical or a technology-based artificial world. And then the people who control that technology, in a way, become the gods or the controllers of that world. And wrapped up in all that is the idea that death is a disease and that transhumanism can solve that problem, um, whatever that means. Let us consider this quote from Aldous Huxley in his
1: book Brave New World. A really efficient totalitarian state would be one in which the all-powerful executive of political bosses and their army of managers control a population of slaves who do not have to be coerced because they love their servitude.
0: Yeah, that's, that's straight out of his book. I think part of what they're alluding to there is they love their cages because they don't know anything, but also they're drugged in that book with a drug called Soma. And if I, you know, Jason, I did so much research around this episode, I can't recall. Huxley is absolutely part of the technocracy movement, um, but if I'm not mistaken, he was one of the first chairs of the Trilateral Commission, is that right?
1: I'll fact check that for you. I don't think so, but I'm not a hundred percent.
0: It's one of those things, and we'll get deeply into the Trilateral Commission, but we'll try to correct that if I'm wrong. It was one of these big overarching organizations to show you that Huxley was more than just an author.
1: Oh, he was definitely uh, tied in with a lot of things because he was a professor at a major university. So, yeah, very tied in.
0: And speaking of universities, Columbia University is going to be key in all this um, because the... Uh, The Rockefellers have to do with the initial funding, there's a whole story about them leasing with, uh, I don't know, every so many years they get to renew their lease, finally they buy it out, and the total worth of Columbia University from that buyout is like more than doubled or something like this. And by the way, this is also where the professor Brzezinski um, comes from, and that ties into the technocracy push as well.
1: Now, before we get into the actual history we're going to cover, let's go over something that a lot of conspiracy theorists love to talk about, and that is the Georgia Guidestones. And with good reason, I would say.
0: I would just ask, Jason, does it mean anything for something to be written in stone? (laughs) It's not not exactly penciled in, is it?
1: (laughs) No, no, you're not going to be losing the loose leaf notebook on this one.
0: No, it's pretty firmly there, isn't it?
1: The Georgia Guidestones are a granite monument erected in 1980 in Elbert County, Georgia, in the United States. A set of ten guidelines is inscribed on the structure in eight modern languages, and a shorter message is inscribed at the top of the structure in four ancient language scripts. One slab stands in the center, with four arranged around it. A capstone lies on top of the five slabs, which are astronomically aligned— an additional stone tablet, which is set in the ground a short distance to the west of the structure, provides some notes on the history and purpose of the guide stones. The structure is sometimes referred to as an American Stonehenge. The monument is 19 feet 3 inches, or 5.87 meters tall, made from six granite slabs, weighing 237,746 pounds or
0: 107,840
1: kilograms in all.
0: Well, I guess I can see that. The American uh, Stonehenge, it's slightly newer, and I stress the word slightly newer than the Stonehenge we're all familiar with. Um, But what does it mean when someone takes effort to put a monument up like this? And what does it mean when nobody can really suss out who's responsible for it? It's a thing, isn't it? But the idea that they've used all these old languages and current world languages, it seems like a pretty serious piece of business.
1: It sure does. And you're correct. A mysterious figure named R.C. Christian is supposed to have been the person who wanted this put up, but there really was no real person named R.C. Christian.
0: Well, it might as well have been R.C. Cola, right? Um, doesn't mean a damn thing. And not only that, from what I understand, people have tried to go to the Granite Company and the Carvers um, and still couldn't discover who, how, where, why. The only thing we really know is the when, 1980.
1: Right. According to the main blurb on it, they thought this was ridiculous and gave them a price for the whole thing multiple times what it should have cost, and they paid it anyway.
0: Well, I guess money's not an issue for some people, huh? Money is not an issue for some people. They've got lots of carbon
1: credits. Yeah, there it
0: is an endless <laughs> supply of carbon.
1: <laughs> so, a message consisting of a set of 10 guidelines or principles is engraved on the Georgia Guidestones in eight different languages, one language on each face of the four large upright stones. Moving clockwise around the structure from due north, these languages are English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, traditional Chinese, and
0: Russian. It's strange, you know, if you just go back to simply saying words have meaning, um, they're called the Guidestones, and that's another thing. Um, so nobody knows who put them there, but everybody knows what to call them, right? Yes, that's very true.
1: Of course, this is really at the heart of what a lot of people call the New World Order in our face. But needless to say, these things are very interesting.
0: Well, the, the, the first rule you're about to cover here um, implies that uh, someone knows about a disaster that most of us don't know about or some other terrible thing is about to happen, doesn't it?
1: The implication is certainly there. The first one, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature.
0: So did the richest elite among us just sit around with a hat full of cards and pull this number out of a hat? Uh, you got to wonder how they arrive at this, and you know if we think back to our population episodes that we did, where we basically showed um, that what the mainstream implies is that we're going to have a hundred million gazillion people here, and every year it gets worse and worse. What we actually found is the majority of races are in decline, and if we are correct in the research that we did, and I think it's pretty much demonstrable um it feeds into this idea right because we stated that by 2100 i think it was jason um or basically three decades to that point uh most of the western races in this world will have hit a birth rate that is unsustainable and has never been recovered from just to put it out there
1: next guide reproduction wisely improving fitness and diversity
0: Uh, There's your Brave New World tie-in. If anyone hasn't read Brave New World, go ahead and read it, because um, that echoes the ideas where people are so controlled in that narrative uh, that they can control whether they'll be good-looking, whether they'll be smart, uh, when they're going to be born, how they're going to be born, everything.
1: It also sounds very Nazi Germany with their Superman concept.
0: Well, you can't separate Huxley from eugenics. Uh, You just can't. He's right there in the middle of all that. The Darwinism, which was maybe the bedrock foundation for the eugenics ideas. Unite humanity
1: with a living new
0: language. Well, all I can say is good, Jason, because I was getting tired of this dead language we're using. (laughs) Pun intended.
1: Rule passion, faith, tradition,
0: and all things with tempered reason. There's your dictatorial statement, Um, rule, passion, rule, faith, rule, tradition, and all things. Um, And the idea that it's tempered with reason is, uh, it's a bit laughable. Who's reason? You know, it's a bit like what's going online right now, where Jason and I do research, we put up a thing, and then lo and behold, someone takes it upon themselves to put up an Encyclopedia Britannica entry under our research, So I would just ask, whose reason is all this supposed to be tempered with?
1: Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes
0: in a world court. Shouldn't that be like a one world court? You mean the United Nations? (laughs) Something like that. That's what it's implying. It's the one world idea, isn't it?
1: Avoid petty laws and useless officials.
0: (laughs) So let let me translate that statement. We don't need no stinking laws or governments. (laughs) We don't need no education
1: either. No.
0: Balance personal rights with social duties. The whole thing is just a bit dictatorship, you know? It, It just smacks of dictatorship. Prize truth,
1: beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite.
0: So is this like a a pre-echo of the idea of transhumanism? It it seems out of place with all these other things, you know, and all of a sudden we come to, okay, everybody, you're in a dictatorship now. And by the way, we killed most people or for whatever reason, most people died. There's only 500 million left, Uh, but you all need to prize beauty, truth, love, and seek harmony with the infinite.
1: (laughs) And this last one really gives you the elitist point of view in your face. Be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. Leave room for nature. And yes, it is inscribed twice on the stones.
0: You know, they got some nuggets because if you're going to say don't be a cancer on the earth and we know that the elite are likely behind this, let's look at an oil company. Those people are run by the elite. Is there anyone out there listening who doesn't think an oil company is a cancer on the earth? Everything it produces is bad for the environment. The whole idea of global warming, which I don't accept, is based on mostly um, fossil fuels or what's called fossil fuels, which aren't fossils at all, um, polluting things. So this is all just very disingenuous. It smacks of uh, do what we say, not as we do. You know, like we're in charge. You just basically listen to what we have to say.
1: Well, you took my joke because I was going to say that they needed to turn this one up to 11 with the last inscription of do as we say, not as we do.
0: Exactly. it's exactly what it is. Um, and, and all this, you know, it gets so kind of wrapped up in conspiracy and people. But I mean, let's face it. Someone wrote this stuff in stone and uh, words have meaning, you know, basically.
1: Well, it almost sounds like they were putting out a spell, doesn't it?
0: It's, it's a whole strange thing, and I've never really taken the time because I'm not interested in, in mainstream conspiracy too much, but uh, I am interested in the astrological alignments. As a matter of fact, there's a number of people in the forum over at Crow 777 Radio uh, working on things like this, equinoxes, eclipses, how the sky clock works. So all you folks that are membership over there, uh, it would be a very interesting thing to try to determine what exactly is being aligned to by the Georgia Guidestones. But not by what someone else has mentioned, what we can observe firsthand now, according to the sky as we see it now. So, the earliest leanings of
1: what today is called globalization, world government, or even the ever spooky New World Order, what we are really discussing is what is a behind the scenes technocracy that seemed to really have its beginnings with one of the earliest mega corporations, that being the East India Company.
0: There'll be pirates in them seas. Um, yeah, it, I think we can absolutely show that that even modern corporations, so many things start with the East India Company. But after we get through this, uh, I think we'll be able to show that, that the real elite in this world got tired of all these captains and shipping magnets and uh, stepped in and took it took it all back. But anyhow, let's go, Jason.
1: Well, what we see is the intertwining of the old aristocracy with the mega corporations and how these things then get wrapped up with the modern governments and it's one great big spider web, really.
0: Agreed, and to, to some degree. Though we can track the ideas of admiralty law back to a supposed place called Rome, uh, for my money, uh, this is really where it looks to be implemented in any meaningful way for the first time. When the idea that what goes on in a ship on the ocean is pulled onto dry land... Well, and this is also
1: where we get the whole notion of the three city-states and how those things all intertwine as well, because that is most certainly a thing. Indeed. The East India Company was a British joint stock company formed to pursue trade with what used to be known as the East Indies, which is known as the Maritime Southeast Asia in the present day, originally chartered as the Governor and Company of Merchants of London trading into the East Indies, the company rose to account for half of the entire world's trade. This included in particular basic commodities such as textiles, dyes, and spices. The company traded mainly with China and the Indian subcontinent. It received a royal charter from Queen Elizabeth I on December 31, 1600. Wealthy merchants and aristocrats owned the company's shares. During its first century of operation, the focus of the company was on trade. Company interests turned from trade to territory during the 18th century as the Mughal Empire began to decline in power. The company became so much more than just a trading company, but an actual major military and political power in India and the surrounding regions, gradually increasing the extent of the territories under its control and eventually ruling the whole Indian subcontinent, either directly or indirectly through local rulers who acted as henchmen under the threat of force by the company's armies." By 1803, at the height of its rule in India, the British East India Company had a private army of about 260,000 men, which was twice the size of the official British army. Company rule in India lasted until 1858 when, following the Indian Rebellion of 1857, the British crown assumed direct control of the Indian subcontinent. The Government of India Act of 1858 removed the company as rulers of India, and the company's armies, territories, property, and powers passed to crown
0: rule. You know, if you really think about this, Jason, it's almost like what you see uh, in this claimed history is where we're headed. Um, What you're looking at is, so there was a corporation, they went out to do trade, they were so successful that basically they became governments and the rulers of where they were. In other words, if you're ruling over a group of people as the local government, uh, everything you do is going to cater to the corporation business. And that, to me, technocracy is that um, it's mostly about control, but you can see what happens here. Um, There's no distinction between non-business and business. Everything becomes corporate business. Even the rules and laws and armies are corporate. Um, And that kind of smacks where technocracy heads, kind of. Now, keeping with the history, Columbia
1: University, which is officially called Columbia University in the city of New York, is a private Ivy League research university in upper Manhattan, New York City. Established in 1754, Columbia is the oldest institution of higher education in New York and the fifth oldest institution of higher learning in the United States. It is one of nine colonial colleges founded prior to the Declaration of Independence, seven of which belong to the Ivy League. It has been ranked by numerous major education publications as among the top ten universities in the world. Columbia was established as King's College by Royal Charter of George II of Great Britain in reaction to the founding of Princeton University in New Jersey. It was renamed Columbia College in 1784 following the Revolutionary War, and in 1787 was placed under a private board of trustees headed by former students Alexander Hamilton and John Jay. In 1896, the campus was moved from Madison Avenue to its current location in Morningside Heights and renamed Columbia University. Columbia scientists and scholars have played an important role in the development of notable scientific fields and breakthroughs, including Brain-Computer Interface The Laser and the Maser Nuclear Magnetic Resonance The First Nuclear Pile the first nuclear fission reaction in the Americas. Thomas Hunt Morgan's Drosophila experiment considered the origin of modern genetics, the first evidence for plate tectonics and continental drift, and much of the initial research and planning of the Manhattan Project during World War II. The Columbia University Physics Department has been affiliated with, count the ways, 33 Nobel Prize winners as alumni, faculty, or research staff the third most of any American institution behind Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Harvard University. In addition, 22 Nobel Prize winners in Physiology and Medicine have been affiliated with Columbia, the third most of any American institution.
0: So that was a big mouthful, but the point here is is that technocracy can count its modern roots back to Columbia University. And look at all the technological achievements, but I would... Also point out, look closely at some of these claims. The first nuclear pile, nuclear fission, uh, we've shown what the basis for nukes is, and that's Marie Curie or Mercury. Uh, people who follow us will understand what I'm getting at. The point is, um, Columbia University is part and parcel of the, uh, the pushing forward of the technocracy idea, which is now coming into its own
1: Now, of course, we can't talk about world government or anything to do with it without bringing in the Rothschilds, can we? No, can't be done. So the Rothschild banking family tie-in with the East India Company. As early as 1799, Nathan Mayer Rothschild, who lived from 1777 until 1836, began to import and distribute Indian goods dealing in such things as cloth, cotton, coffee, cowries, cinnamon, indigos, mace, nutmegs, pepper, rice, saltpeter, and sugar. Nathan Mayer Rothschild is also reported to have dealt with the East India Company in connection with the famous Waterloo Commission, the contract from the British government to supply the Duke of Wellington with gold coin to pay his troops in 1814 and 1815. In regard to the Rothschild family profiting immensely from the Waterloo situation, they only claim one reference to it at all in a letter. However, there is a lot of suggestion that they most assuredly did profit and profit massively. Although there also seems to be no direct evidence that Nathan held East India Company shares, although there were numerous claims that stated otherwise, There are still direct business dealings going all the way back to the beginnings of the Rothschilds banking empire, which they absolutely profited from incredibly, no matter whatever else may or may not be the truth.
0: So the reason we bring this up, you know, you hear the same names over and over. Um, The banks can't be separated from any of this ever. Uh, One of the one of the research threads I was going down had to do with Chase Manhattan Bank um, and the Rockefellers. And they were being interviewed, one of these, these people were in the trilateral commission and their spokesperson was being interviewed one of four times, I guess they've never been interviewed since all the way back in the seventies or something like this. they were asking simply, hey, man, are you guys, you know, you're making all this policy. You've stacked the United States government, which we'll get into. Trilateral commission started stacking the United States government in 1973 under Jimmy Carter. It can be shown all day long. Um, but the point here is these interviewers at the time recognized, hey, what are all these trilateral commission people being put into government? So they started asking, do your board members own banks? And it was yes. Yes. And then they started asking, do they own energy concerns? And they were told no. So they pointed out that, well, one of your members basically owns and is the board of director of this bank and has endless shares and is the chief shareholder in these oil companies. And they were basically showing Um, The overarching control, and that's why the banking tie-ins are always so critical, because even though they may not own directly um, an oil company for whatever reason, it can often be shown that they're the majority shareholder. Um, So just to put all that on the table, Jason.
1: Well, they don't have to have direct control in name. It's, again, this giant spider web that they weave. They've got their fingers in pretty much every pie out there that's important.
0: That's, that's absolutely not understated, Jason, or overstated. I mean, it's, it's the truth. These, these big banks, I mean, they got their fingers everywhere and in everything. And that's not even the top of the pile. um, Because when you get to things like the trilateral commission, and we'll cover that in a minute here, um, you'll see what's gone on here. And just the name of the Trilateral Commission is interesting. Does anyone know why they call it the Trilateral? Well, it's because it's made up of people from America, people from Japan, and at the time, I think they were calling it Western Europe. Um, And so it can be shown all day long that the Trilateral Commission was dictating uh, United States public policy. And yet two members of the Trilateral Commission, or from other countries. So here at the corporate level, all these things were being pushed through the American government, and part of the participants weren't even from this country. It's a hell of a tale, man. And the other way they do it, of course, is the whole pyramid scheme, if you want to call it
1: that, in the sense that... This corporation owns this corporation, but above them is this corporation that blankets all of those. That's how they control everything. They don't have to own something directly and have the name Rothschild stamped all over it.
0: Well, anyone could go look up the Trilateral Commission. For me, that's near the top of the pyramid, as, t- as close as you're going to get. There's more beyond it, but I don't think you'll ever be able to meaningly meaningfully research it out. So basically what you're looking at um, is a group of people on a board and they're owning or involved in the richest corporations and banks in the world. And they're also all through government and in all these important places. And so basically what it points to is that when Jimmy Carter, who apparently was one of the first, started stacking the government with trilateral commission members, Um, There was a big change in this country and people could reason out. So this happens in like 73 or something like this for the first time when people are noticing, hey, what are all these trilateral commission people being appointed to the cabinet? You know, the president's cabinet. And um, we're followed by the 80s. And the 80s is just a massive party. Um, Everyone's happy. Everyone's partying. Literally, everyone's partying. Money is easier to have. And you can see what went on there. Um, It was all engineering, right? Nobody was paying attention to anything but the good times that were the 80s. But that came screeching to a halt. Um, I mean, literally, as New Year's Day for the 90s was, was approaching, the 80s party came screeching to a halt. But now, in retrospect, you can see um, the world really began to change in a major way in the early 70s. So much of it was put in place in the 80s, and this is the beginning of the technocracy, and it's on its way right now.
1: You know, it's amusing. Even the movies of the time in the 80s really reflect the big picture they were trying to paint of what society was supposed to be like. And those kinds of things were just gone once the 90s hit.
0: I don't think there's ever been a, a pair of brakes put on a car that stopped more quickly than the 80s party. I mean, it. it I mean literally, as as the end of the 80s rolled up, that party, just everything stopped. Uh, and there was a whole different world looming on the horizon, which we were going to call the 90s. You know, I'd be interested to do a
1: show on decades altogether because we focused on certain sections, but starting with, let's say, the 1950s, we could easily demonstrate for those who don't think that music is used to manipulate society as a whole, we could show what the music was in the generation of that decade and how it changed from the 50s to the 60s, the 70s on up, and what the society was like at the time. I think that would actually be a very interesting thing to point out because a lot of folks just don't realize how the tentacles crept more and more and more into things.
0: No, and there's even more that we could add to it if we did a show like that, Jason. I mean, we can show that the the ideas for technocracy were probably bubbled up the first time back in the 17 or 1800s. Um, That's what I found in my research, but consider this. So the idea of technocracy uh, was pushed hard before the the stock market crash of 29, and it didn't go anywhere. And by then it was tied into Columbia University. But after the stock market crashed, apparently as history claims everyone thought well that's it capitalism's dead what's the next thing so they made another run at technocracy um the germans were whole hog into it you know we can engineer our way out of this kind of idea but here's the funny thing in the 50s people were so contented and so successful and one member of the family could hold down a household have a new car put kids through college, all these things, that technocracy was again shunned off because that decade was so prosperous. Um, so you can see how this goes. And, and that also relates to the idea of create a problem, present a solution. And you can show all day long that the decades break down in this way. They most
1: assuredly do. And also the Great Depression was engineered by the bankers. So <laughs> that's right. You see them trying to push their schemes off of the situations that they created in the first place.
0: It's all ridiculous on the face of it, because where does that put us now? What was ever changed? You know, have we had market crashes since 29? There are people on the record who came up with new ways that mathematically proved they could make inflation, never a thing, Uh, devalue of currency. There were all these methods coming out of universities that basically mathematically proved we could be doing all of this in a better way. And none of it was implemented. And you you can remember recently, what, 2008, we had another kind of crash. And here we are today, all sitting here, totally unaware of what your money might be worth at the end of the day. I'm just pointing it out here.
1: You know, that one didn't seem to really affect things the way the 1929 one did. I lived through that, and even though they kept saying there was this big deal, did you really notice it? Did you notice anything directly affecting your life with the 2008 crash?
0: I did. At the time, I was still working prior to that. I walked away and... 2007, 2008. So that's it. I'm done with working for corporations. Um, you could see that people were struggling, big corporations that had just been so viable, all of a sudden were struggling. But then there was all the housing market stuff that went on. And what that was about was a huge transfer of ownership. You know, a lot of people were homeowners, are now renters. But more than that, consider all the people who had retirement accounts that were in money markets of some kind where the value was erased, half of it, or something like that overnight. So even though you may live in a place where you weren't directly affected, some big things happened. There were a lot of people and big corporations and home ownership, all among the things that took a heavy hit during that.
1: Well, I do know that was tied up with the whole internet thing, but that also seems like it was a great big setup from the beginning too.
0: Well, from my point of view, when, when you understand the nature of uh, the capitalism we participate in with fiat currency, it's quite clear that everything that happens is a manipulation. And it's quite clear that whenever you hear talking heads come on TV moaning and groaning about the debt and how we got to get our hands around the debt, it's all, just, it's all nonsense. The system is built on debt. If there was no debt, there would be no fiat currency. As a matter of fact, it's been pointed out by many, many people that the idea of this debt-based currency we're all living on, where we hand around IOUs that can never be exchanged for anything of value other than products, is... Well, you know what, Jason? I'm, I'm just going to leave this this line of reasoning alone. Just suffice it to say that it's all manipulated, it's all based on debt, and there will never be a time when more debt doesn't need to be accrued each year for this system to continue to work. And that also points to the the kind of head of the pin we're balanced on here. Um, what would happen if the entire economy crashed again like a 29? Would we wake up a day later and all be living on carbon credits? It's hard to know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, if we don't know, then that may be what they're trying to do to us.
0: Well, it's it's all the same as it ever was. It, it happened back then. It could happen at any time in the future, and we all know it. Looking back to
1: our history, in further connection between Rothschild and the East India Company, Nathan recommended his principal clerk, John Roworth, for enlistment as a cadet with the company in 1818, And I can only assume that this gave the Rothschild family a direct reporting line to things going on inside the company to help further their own interests, which is what, of course, they always do. But there's no direct documentation of this. We just see them spidering out into everything they possibly can as much as they can.
0: There are accounts, and it's you know you got to take history with a grain of salt, right? It's written by the victors. But uh, the whole Waterloo thing you just covered, which is in in the lexicon, you know, Waterloo—that phrase is used all the time uh, to reflect what happened at the battle there. And there are big statues to the man who won it for Britain. Um, a lot of people will claim that that's what changed everything for the Rothschild banking cartel was that thing. And so I think it's safe to say, Jason, everything that happens after the fact is just firming up their their power and their prestige.
1: That I would definitely think is true. Now, I found a very interesting website that I, for some reason, never came across before called the Rothschild Archive, and it's the family actually put up this website, and they have a lot of their documents scanned and some photographs and everything, and I have barely had time to go through just how much is on that site. But for anyone out there, just go look it up at the Rothschild Archive. Tons of stuff on there. And what's interesting is you can see them admitting to things if you know what you're looking for, although they don't outright put up their head and go, yeah, we're behind everything. But it's it's there. You can definitely see it if you understand what the bigger picture is.
0: Well, this is part of the problem with the research we're able to do now and, and the direction that the internet is heading in where, um, like I said, you know, we do research, but according to whoever's in charge, Encyclop- Encyclopedia Britannica is the only research that matters. Um, it's a funny thing when you look at Rothschilds and Rockefellers in the story of technocracy because it's pretty clear way back to where you're at in history. The Rothschilds are prominently portrayed, but as you get up to like Columbia University in the United States, Rockefeller becomes the name um, that is so heavily associated with it. And there doesn't, you know, historically written doesn't appear to be any crossover. So it's all a bit confusing. But, you know, we, we see the same names all the time, do we not? We
1: absolutely do. Now, something else that was going on at the same time, about the same time, was the creation of the Bank of England. And this is, of course, located in the city of London, one of the three city states. The Bank of England is, of course, the central bank of the United Kingdom and is the model on which most modern central banks have been based. And this includes, of course, the Federal Reserve. Right. It was established in 1694 to act as the English government's banker and is still one of the bankers for the government of the United Kingdom today. It is the world's eighth oldest bank and it was privately owned by stockholders from its foundation in 1694 until it was nationalized in 1946. The bank became an independent public organization in 1998, wholly owned by the Treasury Solicitor on behalf of the government, but with its own independence in setting monetary policy. This also sounds like the Federal Reserve. The bank is one of eight banks authorized to issue banknotes in the United Kingdom, has a monopoly on the issue of banknotes in England and Wales, and also regulates the issue of banknotes by commercial banks in both Scotland and Northern Ireland.
0: So there you have it, man. It's a corporation setting monetary policy. And not only that, the, the, the board members and other people, which are not always easy to identify in some of these central banks, um, they have business concerns and other banks and oil companies and all these other things. And yet these are the guys setting monetary policy. Um, it's a hell of a thing, Jason. and And that's where technocracy seeks to go. So as we see the central banks run, Uh, so basically a corporation putting forward all policy rules and laws that have to do with currency, Um, that's what technocracy becomes. It becomes this entity, this kind of corporate entity above government. But let's let's go back to one of our earlier shows where we demonstrated that the Bank of England central bank that was just referenced here was the model which our central bank was built on. And I think it was 1924. Hope I have the date wrong. Anyone can look this up online. A guy named Norman Montague, which was the governor of the Central Bank of England. Maybe it's Montague Norman. It's either Norman Montague or Montague Norman, gives a speech to all the bankers of the United States. And in that speech, he basically informs everyone. We've got this dual political Democrat Republican political party in place here in the United States. And just to let you all know, it's doing exactly what we're planned and what the political parties were created for and meant to do is to keep everybody arguing about things of no importance. Not kidding. Look it up. The speech from Norman Montague uh, from the central bank of england speaking in the united states in 1924 to a convention of bankers so there's all that that's another
1: really obvious one you can see they did it in england and the united states they streamlined everything down to two parties so they could easily control both sides but always keep them at odds and keep people funneled into either one or the other while there are other political parties they don't mean a whole hell of a lot. And I know libertarians and others will not like that, but that's the bottom line. They don't really matter all that much.
0: Who can forget the whole Ross Perot thing uh, in the United States? At the time that was going on, I was in San Diego Um, You couldn't go into any part of San Diego where there are not people in parking lots on the streets with Perot signs and he was going to be the new third party. And not only that, Ross Perot stood up against NAFTA, free trade, all these things. Very few people understand how that actually happened. Look up what it means to fast track because that's how NAFTA was put in place. Basically, the Constitution prevents the, the president from by himself being able to form treaties or something to this effect what the fast tracking did was actually allow the president to do this thing the constitution forbids him and it has to be like ratified or something like this within 20 hours bafta nafta and almost all the free trade things were used with this fast track method and this is what ross perot one of the things he was just trashing It's hard to know who the hell Ross Perot was, why he was there. Um, For my part, I suspect them all at that level. But the point was, is he was telling you a true thing about all this free trade. Because once they get the European Union and all these borders broken down, technocracy and a technical dictatorship becomes much more feasible. Um, And that's what all this is about, man.
1: I've always wondered what the real thing was with Ross Perot. But if he was intending to try and do some good, I don't think he would have lasted very long. I think they would have just all worked against him behind the scenes to undermine everything. And he was an older man to begin with. So, you know,
0: you know what? I'm calling insider baseball and prove me wrong. Um, it just it makes sense. You know, it's it's like it's like I say all the time. You see a bunny, you know, there's another bunny in the world. You see a sunflower. Guess what? You know, there's another sunflower. Well, I've seen politicians I've seen what they do. We we outline what's been going on here. So I could be wrong, but for my part, I'll assume that I'm not until someone shows me something different. And By the way, how Ross Perot fell out of the race that he was apparently dominating if the streets were to be believed, um, it, there's – All these different accounts. There's no really clear-cut, straight account. I could find two or three reasons why it all fell down. And one of them is so ridiculous as to have to do with his daughter's wedding or something like this and someone's life being threatened. I mean, it's just all a bit much to accept, Jason.
1: Well, again, even if he was even somewhat legitimate, the popular vote doesn't vote the president. The Electoral College does. So if he was truly doing his own thing and trying to buck the system, they wouldn't have let him in anyway.
0: Right, and there's another piece of this you could consider. So here's a guy pointing out that all this free trade and NAFTA and turning North America into one economic group was a bad idea. What happened to him? Uh, he was removed. It's almost like saying it's almost like a politician saying, "You know what? Ross Perot came up with all these ideas, but you guys just didn't, you know, you weren't backing him enough, so he went away." So it's almost like they're they're trying to convince you that uh, the people decided. That his ideas, you know, weren't there. So who knows whether he was put there to say helpful things and then be removed or whether it was something else. For my part, I've seen politicians. And when I see a politician, I know there's more politicians and I understand what most politicians are about. So there's all that.
1: Not just politicians, but businessmen. And all we have to do is look to the current day and we see a very similar thing that did go down. Donald Trump. (laughs)
0: Um, You know, that's that's a funny thing, too. I haven't watched two minutes. I don't think I've even ever heard him speak as president. Um, I just can't take it. It's it's painful to watch uh, so many people being deluded like like. I I just don't, you know, why would you even be invested in this? We've done shows to show. They don't pick them. They don't seat them as president. And they sure as hell aren't doing anything for the common man. Um, And we can show all day long that the real concerns are, are things like technocracy. So
1: we're at the top of the hour here. Let's get the last point in on the British East India Company. By 1803, we see the height of the British East India Company's rule in India. The company eventually came to rule large areas of India with its private armies, exercising military power, and assuming administrative functions. Company rule in India is said to have effectively begun in 1757 and would last until 1858. This is after the Indian Rebellion of 1857 and the Government of India Act of 1858 led to the British crowns assuming direct control of the Indian subcontinent in the form of the new British Raj. The official government of British India assumed the East India Company's governmental functions, then absorbed its navy and its armies in 1858. Despite government intervention on a regular basis, the British East India Company had recurring problems with its financial stability. It was officially dissolved on June 1st, 1874, as a result of the East India Stock Dividend Redemption Act that had been passed a year earlier, as the Government of India Act had by then rendered it vestigial, powerless, and pretty much obsolete.
0: (laughs) So, you know, basically, if you look at what happened in India, uh, what's what's being demonstrated is the exact opposite of what most people would like to be true or want to fake like is true. So what most people would like to, to be true is the King Arthur narrative, right? Uh, King Arthur comes along and he says, hey, man, might isn't right. We're going to make laws um, and laws are going to be treating everybody with fair courts and all this other stuff. But in fact, what we see, if we go back through history, is a private corporation was so damn tough, no one one could stop them. They were all the muscle on the block to the point where they became the ruling government and everything else. And then, lo and behold, we're told by this history uh, that the British government, for some reason, finally steps in and passes laws and takes control of it all. Um, It's a bit hard to accept any of this historical narrative on the face of it, Jason. Well, in hour two,
1: we're going to step into the 20th century and really start showing you how the pieces of the modern day technocracy were put into place.
0: Absolutely. As a matter of fact, in hour two, where free speech rules, we will flat out state how it's going to be measured, how it works, how it's intended to be implemented. And we'll probably point out that it's looking like 2020 may be a milestone year. Um, After all, for those people who watch the news at all, you're probably aware, smart IDs go into effect in 2020. Uh, Apparently, you won't be able to get onto a plane. There's even rumblings that you can't cross a state line without a smart ID. What most people don't know is the chip in the smart ID from the research I just did, it is claimed can be pinged or tracked by any wireless network. So there's all that. Anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 147 to a close. And we hope to see you all over at Crow 777 Radio because we're going to lay it down in spades and uh, we can do it there because that is, in fact, a free speech zone. So there it is, man. Hope to see you all over at Crow 777 Radio.com. Cheers.